Hi everyone, I'm Cullen Kelly, and I wanna welcome you to Masters of Color, brought to you by lowpost.com and ravengrade.com. Now, most of us are probably already familiar with Lowpost and their library of post-production courses, but if you haven't had a chance to check out Ravengrade yet, I wanna encourage you to do so. Some of the world's top colorists have gotten together to design a plugin with a diverse library of scene-referred looks that you can use to craft world-class images. My guest today is Toby Tompkins, founder and senior colorist at Cheat. Toby is my kind of guy. He's an artist and an entrepreneur and a tinkerer with a passion for filmic imagery and an incredible eye for detail. We've got a great conversation on deck for you today on the history and the future of color grading. Today's episode is sponsored by Pixelview.io, an affordable streaming solution for editors and colorists. The team behind Pixelview are colorists themselves, and they recognize the need for a more affordable and simpler streaming solution. Offering both a high-quality live feed and a built-in video chat, Pixelview makes remote collaboration easier than ever before. You can use promo code MASTER to get a 15% discount on a hardware encoder at pixelview.io. And now, without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Toby Tompkins. Toby! Hello, how are you doing? What's up, brother? Long time no see. <laughs> oh, man. So for everybody listening this morning, I have to share the story of the fantastic conversation that Toby and I had in which I failed to record it. So uh, really glad to have you back, buddy. And uh, I'm going to avoid the temptation to try to recreate all of the fascinating conversation that we had last time, but we'll have a whole different fascinating conversation because uh, as we always talk about when we get together, there's like endless hours of like rabbit trails and, and uh, you know, deep wells to, to, to go down and, and talk about with color grading and image science. So we're going to have a good time today. And thank you so much for uh, joining me again for uh, another great conversation. No worries. Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I'm a little bit nervous today because the, the interview was so good last time. I was like, oh, I hope it's as good this time, but I'm sure it will be. <laughs> oh, dude, same thing. I mean, I, 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 we wrapped up last time and I like uh, went downstairs to uh, my wife and I was like, man, Toby and I just had the best conversation. And then I came up and I was like, all right, let's take a look at the recording. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't record it. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a little nervous too, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have a, a different, but uh, just as fun conversation. And uh, I think uh, everyone's going to be super excited to hear your insights and experience from uh, your many years of color grading. So let's get into it, man. So uh, Toby, you are the founder and senior colorist uh, at Cheat, uh, a uh, color facility uh, in London. And uh, you've got one of the reasons that really the reason that I wanted to have this conversation with you is because you've managed to build a really, really great craft and creative career, but you're also an incredibly successful entrepreneur and you've managed to build up a business around your craft and to build up uh, and, and work alongside some really phenomenal artists and you know turn your practice as an individual artist into a really good business model. Um, so it, it's been so cool to watch you do that and it's really inspiring because we're in an era now where like the, there are fewer and fewer like companies doing what we do at a high level and really well. And those companies tend to be like 
very large and they tend to have really deep benches and uh, it appears very deep pocketbooks. And you have built Cheat in a relatively short, I'm sure it didn't feel short to you, but in a pretty short period of time without some, you know, like massive corporate uh, backing or it being a venture offshoot of some other entity. So I guess all that stuff uh, leads me to my first question of like, how did you do it? How, how, how did you pull that off? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things, really. I mean, you know, the, the work, the work always comes first, you know, that's, that's, you know, got to be the starting point of, of, of this success story, I think. Um, and then also the sort of the democratization of the, the hardware and the software to some extent, you know, timing. Um, I, I guess I took quite an unusual route. You know, I didn't, I didn't sort of go in as a runner at a post house and then an assistant and then a junior. Um, I certainly considered it. Um, went for a few interviews, didn't get the job and, and decided to sort of go at it alone and, and start grading at home. Had a lucky break straight after film school. Well, not really a lucky break. I, I certainly had to work for that, but um, managed to grade a feature film um, myself just after graduating. Um, it was quite interesting, really, because I had to I had to first AD the independent feature in order to grade it. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, they weren't looking for a colorist. Um, they were looking for a first AD. Um, and I just saw that, that they were making a feature. And I was like, oh, that'd be quite nice to grade a feature straight out of film school. Um, so I applied to, to sort of grade the film. And they were like, oh, we're not really thinking about post just yet. Um, but we're looking for a first AD and we can see that you've done quite a lot of first AD. And I was like, if I first AD the film, can I grade it? And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> um, and instead of getting paid, um, I got them to buy me hardware. So I got like a Matrox IO box, um, a CRT, oh, a CRT Sony Trinitron monitor. Yeah. And like a MacBook Pro, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and graded that film in my bedroom um, in Apple color. Um, so that was, yeah, that's sort of the beginnings of it. And then sort of progressed, started doing more work, started freelancing in London, um, set up a little home suite, convinced enough clients to move out of London. Um, and then eventually made the move into London. Um, and then things really took off, uh, met my previous business partner, Joseph Bicknell, who's now at company three. Um, and yeah, it just kind of kicked off from there really. Um, and then it's been a sort of organic growth of, you know, needing more people, producers, assistants, engineers, and it's, it's sort of naturally grown into, into what it is now. That's such a cool story. And it, it seems like if, I, if I'm trying to like steal the t high level lessons from you with uh, what you just shared, it seems like there's that emphasis that you mentioned at the beginning of like really being focused on craft and like the work itself. And that's got to come first. And that's like, price of admission, you got to be able to do the job really well. Um, yeah. But then there's also the, the, the like subtext and uh, the story that you just told is placing, seems like almost equal emphasis on uh, relationships and on uh, like creating good collaborations, whether that's like collaborating in a grade or a collaboration like you talked about where you said, hey, I think I can support you by being your first AD and we can, you know, collaborate by, uh, you know, like having you grab me some gear that I need and giving me my at bat as a feature colorist. Uh, so it's, it seems like those are two of the keys for uh, your success is, uh, you know, like focusing on the work and then also focusing on relationships and on making good deals, good collaborations. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're really lucky as, as colorists. Um, you know, I think if you do if you do a, a good job as a colorist, I, I think potentially you get three at least three clients out of that job. Um, not not a lot of people can necessarily say that. Um, you know, you'll, you'll hopefully have a, a director, a DOP, and a producer, either agency or, or production producer, um, who will want to come back if you've particularly impressed them. Um, so if you keep on doing good work, you very quickly build up a network sort of quicker than, I don't know, let's say a DOP, for example. Um, and you also get the opportunity to work on so many projects. You know, you could work on, I don't know, maybe... 10 projects in a week at a, at a maximum. Um, yeah. So you're just instantly meeting more people than, than people doing other specialties. So it's sort of capitalizing on that. And if, if you're consistently delivering, um, you know, it's only a matter of time before you build up that network. That's such a good point. And uh, it's something that I, I, I don't think about enough because we, we've all got our like gripes and frustrations with the nature of our business and our industry. But you're so right. Like that's probably that may be the biggest thing in the pros column for us is like, that's been my experience too. It really is a meritocracy. Like if you're doing good stuff, people are going to come to you with more stuff to do, which as you said, like that's, I remember them telling me like day one in film school, like that's not the way it's going to go for you out there guys. Like in terms of like getting your movie made or a lot of the other lanes that we uh, might be driving in as filmmakers, like it, there, it, there's a lot more, going on it's a lot more complicated and certainly there's some of that with color but i've had your experience that like yep yeah, focus on doing good stuff and that that ends up paying out yeah no 100 very cool um well i mean where, where to even begin man i mean like so let, let's talk about your your work for a second because we we talked about cheat and uh you know kind of how the the beginnings of that and how you got your start as a colorist and if we fast forward to you know the the other end of that to where you are now you've done so much good stuff um the end of the fucking world like one of my uh personal recent favorites uh i am not okay with this all kinds of commercial stuff bmw land rover uh, under armor puma the list goes on and on in like all these different like sort of categories of of different motion images and i'm such a fan of what you do and one of the things that i love about your thumbprint as an artist is your one of the most like like dogged devotees of like how can i borrow and get all of the magic of cinema and you know like going to see a movie and a movie print and like the kind of traditional photochemical uh, imaging systems that we probably both grew up on and yet at the same time you're very much on the bleeding edge of this craft and you're uh, doing all kinds of hdr finishes and you're very forward thinking in terms of like, what's not just the way we've always done this, but what's the best way to do this? And I have so many questions to ask you uh, about that sort of balancing act, but I, I don't know, maybe the place to begin is just to talk about like, what is it for you about film emulation that you've found so compelling uh, and, and has kept you interested all these years? Well, I think there's a, I think there's a long history of, how we perceive images on on screen and i think a lot of that history is grounded in in celluloid because that was the only format choice available you know obviously there's different film stocks and different print stocks and the multiple combinations and the different lab prices and then all the lighting the production design but there, there's certain qualities to it that i think instantly make something recognizable as a world on screen as a as a 
as a canvas for a story to unfold. Um, and I think deviating away from that into the sort of more realistic representation of the world is, is more associated with, you know, documentary, TV and reality television. So I think there's, I think it's interesting to think about it as instantly tapping into someone's subconscious to say, this is fiction, this is a story, this isn't real, um, as a kind of way to, to sort of, I don't know, lull any uh, sort of disbelief in the filmmaking process because it's been established through our subconscious reference of what cinema and storytelling on screens is. Um, but I think that's, I think that's, I think that's changing a lot now. I think that's, you know, I don't think it's a necessity. Um, you know, I, I, I have been doing some, some sort of scientific research recently looking into the effects of, of color grading in commercials. And there is a heightened emotional response with elements that create a feeling of nostalgia. Uh -huh. um, so sort of tapping into that as a way to actually heighten the emotional reaction of something can only be a good thing. Right. Um, so yeah, I, th I think it's interesting. I think a lot of it is, isn't just purely aesthetic. I mean, I think a lot of filmmakers like how, how film looks, how cinema has looked and, you know, the photochemical finish and the look of print. But I think it's deeper than that. I think it's a, I think it's a subconscious emotional thing. Um, and that's, that's something that's not really tangible. You know, it's not really something you can really get into, but is, is sort of my firm belief that it, yeah, it, it just helps with world building for fiction. I think. I, I think you're so right. And, and, and yeah, there, there, there are some more practical aspects and, and, uh, like, tangible aesthetic considerations that I'm excited to talk about when it comes to film emulation as well. But I, I really think what you just highlighted is something that so few of us understand and it takes so long to develop an understanding of when you're a, really a visual artist of any stripe, but certainly colorists, is we're, it, we're not just there to like make the images look good, we're there to like somehow like place a lens on culture, either contemporary or historically, and place the images within a meaningful cultural context. So if it's like, this needs to feel of this moment or of that moment or of like no moment whatsoever, like all that stuff is gonna be dictated by, I think the cues that you're talking about of like, where is the tone curve? Where do the blacks die? Where does the peak luma hit? What is the uh, sort of like tonality of those areas? What's the palette, the, all the stuff that you and I like are, are always talking about, like that those things end up defining not just like, oh, I like how that looks or I don't like how that looks, which I, I was obsessed with when, as most like journeyman colorists are, I was obsessed with when I began my career, but it's like, you have to balance that against like, all right, where am I? I think world building is such a way to put it. Like, where am I bringing people and where am I, where am I contextually placing my images with the treatments that I choose for them? Yeah. And so, so, I mean, so much of it is feeling. I think if you overthink stuff, you, you fail to some extent. Yeah. Like, you know, like so much of it is, is, is gut feeling. And, you know, one of my least favorite questions is like, you know, where, you know, what, where do you get your inspiration from? And, 
you know, what are your sort of references and stuff like that. And like, for me, it's just, it's, it's the combined experience of everything I've ever watched and how it made me feel. Yeah. And like, if you've watched loads of films and you're a bit of a film buff or loads of commercials or whatever, you have a personal relationship to the stuff that you like, how it made you feel and how it looked. So it's kind of tapping into that, you know, that visual memory, that bank of, of aesthetics and feelings and interpreting the material. I mean, that's the other thing as well. You know, it's, for me, it's so driven by not, yeah, I don't know how to phrase this quite right, but you know, the, the, I mean, I think Walter Volpato used a phrase called finding, finding the photography. Um, and I, you know, I think that there's something really interesting in that about thinking about what something should feel like and, and the aesthetic that's appropriate for that feeling hand in hand with the material that you have um, and finding that perfect marriage. That's, that's when things look exceptional. Um, and I think the, the best color grades out there um, is when you have that harmony between the cinematography and the grade, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it doesn't happen as often as I would like, but I feel like I know what you're describing in that when you're sort of negotiating that marriage between like, what's the material and what's the treatment and you, you just hit something that just drops into a slot and you're like, Oh, that's it. And then as you said, like, that entirety of your visual experience and perspective like comes to bear and makes you go, it kind of becomes binary. It becomes like yes or no. And all of a sudden it's a yes. Like, that, does that, yeah. does that happen for yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, for me, there's like a, there's a, there's a, not necessarily a sweet spot that's perfect, but it's like a sweet area. Pocket. <laughs> and there's nothing I hate more than going against the cinematography in a grade or, or like fighting against the material. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, it's, I mean, that's what takes the, you know, the 10,000 hours is, <laughs> is dramatically changing cinematography in a way that still looks good. Um, yes. it, it's a lot easier, easier and generally a lot nicer if you lean into the cinematography. Um, so yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a certain volume I guess, of, of, of where I think images look not natural, but, but, but right. And in a way that, that wouldn't necessarily cause to, you know, disengagement or, uh, the suspension of, of disbelief being broken. Um, yeah. and that's, it's really hard. I don't, I can't think of a perfect word for it, but it's not realism. I guess it's authenticity. I think that's probably the perfect word. Mm -hmm. is no matter how bold and how strong you go with the look or the grade of the cinematography, there's a certain level of authenticity that if you go outside of that uh, and the look becomes too apparent, you know, I don't think a grade should ever be noticed. It should be felt, you know, that's, that's sort of one of my, um, what are the, what are the name of those, um, sort of inspiration cards? Um, but if know. I was to create my own set of, of rules and cards, yeah. that I could, you know, when I, when I'm sort of stuck in a grade, yeah. I think that would probably be, be one of them. Oh, that's, <laughs> that, that's such a good one. And talk about like feel and just like logging your hours and, and lots of different grades. Like that's hard, man, to just get to where you're like, yeah, I, the, the, I, I can get it where I want it to go and have it feel like it just 
came off of the camera that way or it just is it just is that it's not even (laughs) something shot or something graded it just is a thing um that's so cool and i think you know i think a lot of that is is just pure experience and 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 time you know Um, yeah to, to find that sweet spot and you know i think you know when you look back on work if you've gone too far if you've if you if you've you know done a little bit too much tone mapping and yeah. or you you know you've you've pushed something a little bit too far you might not realize it at the time and you know you've got clients over your shoulder sort of pushing you to do it yeah and uh, you look at it a few months later and you're like no oh, we should have done that slightly differently <laughs> a little overcooked yeah yeah i i know what you mean um I mean, that's so cool and leads me to, you know, like something I'd love to do now, which is to kind of like, like I'd I'd like to uh, sort of imaginatively go through a grade with you uh, and start from kind of the outset. Like, would you typically, when a new project comes into you, whether you you were involved from the beginning or whether it's come to you after it's been shot, would you typically like the, your first engagement with a new project, would that be some kind of look development? Yeah, everything, everything for me starts with look development from scratch. Um, obviously, I have techniques and I, I generally rebuild a very similar looking node tree. Um, I will try and develop a look across the entire range of material before diving into shot to shot or scene to scene. And the way that I think of it is, you know, DOPs and, and, and directors used to be able to choose a, a negative stock a processing type and a print stock. Um, you know, I, I don't really think digital cameras have the same sort of impact when it comes to the representation of a scene as film stocks do. You know, I don't think they have an inherent look. I'm sure some people might disagree with that, but I very much see digital capture as data capture for, um, yeah. what does C.V. Edling call it? Display preparation, <laughs> um, sure. uh, which we call grading. And it really, I mean, it did annoy me that he didn't, yeah, he didn't call it grading, but there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, so therefore, you know, we need to, we need to sort of bring that, bring that to the table as colorists. We need to, we need to be the, the film stock, be the print stock. So it's about creating something that is consistent across. I mean, obviously you could use different film stocks for different scenes and and whatever. So let's just think about it as a print stock. Um, You would pick, you would choose a print stock for your film, for your commercial music video, whatever. Um, So that's what we need to do with each project. We need to design a, um, a display. We need to prepare it for, for the intended display and format that this is going to be exhibited in. Um, obviously nowadays with sort of color space, um, color management systems and things like ACEs, there's sort of automated ways of, of, of doing that. I, I sort of didn't have that available to me, um, while learning and developing my craft. So I, I still do it all manually. Mm-hmm. So it's about building, you know, it's about building how to get from your digital negative to an image that looks good and creates the you know approximate universe of the project if, if not the world you know it needs to be flexible it needs to uh, work with a variety you know the, the full variety of 
of, of lighting and sources and dynamic range that you might encounter on the entire piece. And I, I start with building that and I spend as much time on that as I can. And while doing that, I'll go into separate clips and scenes and adjust them to make sure that they will work with that look. So it's a, it's a, it's a back and forth non-linear process. And then I'll grade each scene and then each shot. And sometimes during that process, we will refine the overall look. Um, sure. So it's, 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 it's fairly fluid. Um, so we might discover something on one shot that doesn't, doesn't work. Like there might be some sort of super saturated greens um, just in a scene and we haven't encountered them before. So I might have a look at adjusting that on the base look um, and seeing how that affects the other scenes before isolating it within just each shot. That's a, a philosophy like you, you've shared with me in the past and I've, I've learned so much from you on this where like it, it seems like that's almost a stock question for you when you're whenever you encounter something new on shot X and you make an adjustment and you kind of find like, okay, that works. It seems like you're almost always at least auditioning the idea of like, could this be a global ingredient? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, so it's cool. hard to, that's really hard to do well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to make it flexible and soft enough for it to be part of the base look. Um, so there is, there, there's a lot of caveats to, to this approach. Um, and I've certainly been guilty of perhaps doing too much tone work in my overall look and not shot specific. Um, so there's a lot of traps to this. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's been a, been a few years now, probably, I don't know, probably three or four years that I've, I've sort of really sort of disciplined myself into working that way. Uh, before I would have multiple looks per scene. And then that's eventually got distilled to a single base look that everything runs through where possible uh, for the whole, the whole project. It gives you a new appreciation for, you know, like we're talking about doing something by choice and uh, kind of learning by feel that until we had DI, that's, this is, was the work of, uh, you know, color scientists and engineers are like, no, we have to make one stock that's going to do everything and do it well and never break anything. And it really gives you a new appreciation for like, wow, not only did they do something that we're still aspiring to, but they, they did a thing that had to be one, however complex, one set of processes that hits the same way on whatever image runs through it and always works. It, 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 it uh, really gives you a new perspective on that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, you know, it's a shame to throw away all of that, you know, the decades of research done by those... Um, lab scientists as well you know to some extent um it's interesting to see how that development how it progressed and sort of where it was heading and kind of pick up the torch and develop further uh based on that sort of approach of of creating something that unifies material and creates a consistent representation of a, of a scene or authentic representation yeah um, yeah and it's it, it like as difficult as everything that you're describing is it's like isn't that our job as colorists to like take the very best of everything that's come before us and then not stop there but actually move that language forward in a positive direction that like 
makes for more compelling images and more like fantastic worlds to to borrow your term again yeah i mean we've got to keep we've got to keep sort of i don't know well yeah <laughs> do we need to keep um pushing boundaries okay, yeah okay. Or, or do I we need to like we settle in um i guess we do um but there's something i don't know it's a bit like photography really isn't there um you know it just because you can i mean that's also something worth talking about is, is restraint. Yeah. Um, you know, we have limitless possibilities now. It is kind of crazy what we can achieve. Um, just because we can, should we, I think is another, another little inspiration card for, for being stuck in a grave. If something's not working, you know, sort of question uh, whether or not we should be doing this. Just does it, does it belong at all? Yeah. Well, I think it's it's also fascinating to think about like moving the needle forward, but not necessarily, for example, like like an obvious thing that uh, I thought of a couple of years ago or, or found myself thinking about, I should say, is like, oh, we have bigger color gamuts. Isn't that an example of, of like moving things forward? But I think that's a perfect example of, of uh, where what you're saying may be more the example of like, creating better systems is like, I, I know, I don't know what your taste is, but for me, like there are entire sections of whatever, like a, like a rec 2020 color display gamut that I'm like, no, I don't really foresee wanting to see that color really ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, especially that like, greens, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that big bright green, like the way grass photographs before we get our hands on it. I'm like <laughs> maybe my palette will change or maybe the next generation of colors will come at it from a different Advantage and be like, no, I think that can be beautiful in this context. But like for my eye, an example of moving the needle forward there might be like, no, what are some systems that we can implement that are going to sort of softly sculpt that stuff down into a consistently pleasing palette that I don't feel we'd like get all out of the box from like a, you know, a traditional like or like a, a normalizing display prep type of pipeline like you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so subjective, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's one of the most beautiful and frustrating things about our job like, yeah. the subjectivity of, of, of what is what is good yeah uh, and and realizing you know you know tapping into that earlier um idea of our taste being the you know collective sum of all of our experiences of video yeah and recognizing that that is different for everyone and when people think about i don't know words like filmic and cinematic you know that's a very very subjective, very subjective word. Yeah. Um, and you, you do need to sort of pull on those strings a little bit more and maybe get some visual references to see what they think filmic and cinematic is. Yes. Um, and you know, that was, that was the most fun thing about diving into the, the film emulation stuff and building my own profiles and shooting loads of tests on 35 mil and every digital cinema camera and, you know, creating really close matches. Um, and, you know, I was sort of half expecting people to, to sort of be blown away and, and love the fact that they could emulate film so closely. Um, but it turned out that people had a different idea of, of although this was completely um, objective and, you know, done in a scientific way, um, it's still not necessarily what, what people want when they think film. You still um, have to creatively arbitrate from that point in order to, to get what your clients want, huh? Yeah, 
It's, uh, but it's weird because when they shoot on film, they love it. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, I think it needs to maybe be like that. You know, they can't ever see it digitally, I think is, 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 is probably the only way. Uh, yeah. So you actually, you know, you, you create film emulated dailies. <laughs> um, Isn't that like the biggest baggage of like, you know, digital capture and reproduction is that you can turn off whatever preferential color mapping you're doing that like neg to print systems, here's your movie. Like, hope you like the stock you picked. There's, there, there is no bypass on those systems. No. And like when Log, you know, when the Alexa first came out, and uh you know the the rushes weren't transcoded with a lot and you know especially in commercials you know the client and the director and the you know maybe the dp would see the offline for weeks and weeks in log yeah and then it comes to the grade and like no matter how much you push for like a more natural contrast they're so used to seeing it log that once you start compressing those shadows down they're like where's why why are the shadows so crushed you know <laughs> <laughs> they don't they don't look very crushed to me and there's like there was like a year or two where if you look at a lot of commercials they were they were loggier than anything ever before and then it became sort of a zeitgeisty thing so other people because other people were doing it yeah that's, that became fashionable and what people wanted so that it's a constantly evolving understanding of of you know the relevant things around the work that you're doing and what other people are doing and it does you know ebbs and flows and there's trends and uh, it's just it's fascinating to sort of watch it and be part of it really i mean that that one in particular is endlessly fascinating to me that it, it's just like as a an industry of visual artists we got like inceptioned with this like fundamentally false premise that this image untransformed is a valid aesthetic starting point for its reproduction on your display and we just kind of swallowed that. And like you said, it was this bizarre detour that I actually think netted some interesting benefits maybe because we uh, got more of a, a taste for like preservation of dynamic range and not being so like telecine slam the shadows and highlights type of vibes, but what a weird route we took to get there. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty bizarre period. Um, yeah. I mean, it still happens from time to time and I, I, get, I get pretty, pretty annoyed at, you know, the, 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 the DIT or the editor for, for yeah. keeping everything long. I'm like, really? Still? Come on. <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a film print guy, that makes it pretty tough to sell uh, your, 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 your baseline of like, here's generally where I like my ratios to live. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's the nice thing to see the evolution of onset color, ACEs, um, DITs. You know, it's, it's starting to get to a point where it's very unlikely that people will get to see a lock image, yeah. uh, you know, unless they're part of the image making team. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that's quite important and look development is, you know, began only on really the top end, uh, when it comes to sort of onset LUTs and, and graded dailies and stuff. And that's now trickling down. So I think that's going to massively impact the, the process because human beings are programmed to notice change. You know, I think, um, you know, that's, that's probably, probably quite sort of lizard brain stuff. Yeah. Um, so when people are looking at images a certain way, they will notice the change. Um, you know, I mean, certainly, you know, the Arri Rec 709 light and bright greens, you know, right. if, if you've seen that in, in editorial for weeks or months, all of a sudden, you know, you, you do some, some film and, and, and print emulation and the, the greens are less poppy. Yeah, you know, it, it's very likely that a, that a client, you know, especially in advertising, it's like, oh, I'm really missing all the greens. 
What did you do you to know, my greens? Still, yeah, they're still pretty green. Yeah. Um, but they're not, you know, nuclear. But it's not neon, yeah. Yeah, we're programmed to see that. So, you know, you can't really be frustrated by it. It's, it's more the, you should have provided a lot for onset and for the dailies, you know, if you could have, um, to make sure that nobody, nobody sees an image without the intent of the DOP and the director. It's so key that that is as consistent throughout the process as possible. Um, and that's been a real sort of focus of mine over the last couple of years. Yeah, you, you do a lot of like pre-production, like look and, and LUT development so that everyone can have that creative intent uh, mirrored to them throughout the process, right? Yeah, and I think it's also about optimizing the capture for the final for look. treatment, yeah. You know, opposed to shooting something a specific way, you know, thinking that that's the best way to get the final look. You know, I think it's worth exploring, is that? the best way to expose your material for this look, you know, especially when it comes to exposure and film emulation, um, you know, film with its subtractive color has a, a lot of saturation in the, in the, in the bottom end, um, underexposed digital, the shadows do not have a lot of color information in the bottom end. Yeah. So, you know, you have to sort of balance highlight latitude with richness in the shadows, you know, so often I, I sort of see underexposed material on, on digital, you know, to, to make it more filmic by removing all the shadow detail, but you end up with some gray shadows underneath people's chins and, you know, the, the skin just gets really sort of gray in the, in the, in the shadows and the dark areas. And, you know, you kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater just to have a filament in a light bulb somewhere. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's about educating, working together, creating harmony with, you know, everyone responsible for the look, the DOP, the director, the production designer, the costume designer, maybe even makeup and working in a non-linear way because we can, you know, just because it, you know, in the film days, we couldn't do that. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do that now. Um, yeah. So yeah, just trying to sort of push that onto not just feature films, not just TV, but into commercials and shorts and music videos and everything really. I mean, I feel like that's one of the best fruits of your like crazy excursions into like this drive that I, I know you have to understand traditional processes and, you know, film stocks and print stocks and neg and just the history of motion imaging and image mastering and color grading in general of course that makes you good at what you do, but it's clear from the way you're talking that you really take it seriously to be as good of a collaborator and an advisor as you can be to your, your, the folks that you're working with so that you can help them acquire the strongest possible negative for their creative goals. Right. Yeah. It's for, it's for them. Every, everything is, everything's for them. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's tough. You need to have that relationship there and that trust. Because, you know, I think a lot of DOPs have been sort of stung in the past by shooting things in a certain way that maybe is optimized for capture. Um, and then either aren't involved with the grade or doesn't have a, you know, didn't have a good relationship with the colorist and their work ends up being changed in a way that they didn't envisage what it should have been. Um, 
and you know i think there was a you know there certainly was a time and there's certainly still people that you know between there was a sort of animosity between some dops and and, and colorists yeah um and you know i think that's a i think that's a real shame that that happened and continues to happen because the the best results i think is when when you've got that harmony flowing both ways as well um you know a, a good example is you know exposing a scene correctly <laughs> um yeah. and then you know the agency maybe or you know the dop isn't involved and it's just completely uncinematic. There's no density in the shadows. It's super vibrant. It's colorful. There's loads of color separation. It's all sort of loud, you know, okay, great. That's what the client wanted. But the DP is like, Oh, I didn't want to see all of that shadow information. So then they start underexposing their material a lot to remove that information. So it can't be brought back. And like, that's a very destructive way to get your end goal. And I think nowadays there's, there's better ways to do that through, through LUTs and, things like that. So the client never sees that information, you know, that's such a good specific example of, of, of like, yeah, you, you mentioned throwing the baby out with the bathwater earlier. It's like, okay, now maybe you're like, you know, taking out and sandbagging against a treatment that you don't like, but you're also kneecapping your ability to get the treatment that you would, would like to have under the optimal conditions. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I definitely don't want to be perceived like, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very touchy subject potentially. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want it to come across like I'm telling DOPs how to expose. It's not, it's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying let's, yeah. let's experiment, let's work together. So I did a series with Diana Oliferova and called We Are Lady Parts. And she, fortunately we had some time for screen tests. Um, and she's like, she was sort of not really sold into to giving it a little bit more exposure. So fortunately she had enough time to shoot all of the tests with her normal exposure and then with the exposure that I was suggesting. And then we sat in a color bay for four hours and we went through it all and I matched her exposure with my suggestion and then we applied the grade and we graded them to look identical. Um, and then she said, okay, don't tell me which is which. And then we went through each shot and we had two versions identically graded but differently exposed. Um, and we came to the conclusion that somewhere in the middle would be a, <laughs> a good, yeah. a good bit because it was, yeah, sort of 50, 50. Um, and yeah, it's that kind of collaboration and experimentation that I think we need to be fighting for and, you know, supporting, you know, we need to, we need to give up some of our hours, um, to the DIPs to be able to do that to some extent, you know, we can't expect them to, um, just, just sort of necessarily trust us immediately with these things. Obviously I have quite a few relationships with DOPs now. We'll talk about our projects and the, the various scenarios that we might run into, um, and sort of agree and somewhat of an, an approach for, for acquisition to, to get to the end look, you know, I think, yeah, yeah we're, we're, a, we're a tool for the DOP. Um, and they should, they should leverage us a little bit more, I think, um, to, to get the best results. For sure. Well, I, I love your story about uh, We Are Lady Parts, where like, there's an alternate parallel reality version of that with some other colorist where they say, hey, listen, I know what I'm doing here. You don't sit in this chair. You don't sit in this room all day. And I'm telling you, you need to push it a stop. Like th th there's, there's a version where you could do that. And that, of course, would be the completely wrong thing. And I love that 
even though you had an idea and said, hey, I really think this is worth exploring, by exploring and collaborating, you didn't even end up by arriving at a preconceived conclusion of Toby's, but rather collaborating and finding a best fit that proved out on the images rather than, you know, like filmmaker A got their way or colorist Z got their way. It's like, no, let's figure out what our goals are and then audition the best strategies for accomplishing them. Yeah. I mean, it's all about collaboration, you know, that's the beautiful thing about, about film and, you know, our industry in general. Yeah. Um, you know, the more you lean into that, I think the, the better things get. Totally. Okay. So we talked about look dev and we talked about uh, sort of getting that creative intent, uh, like, worked out and then uh, represented earlier rather than later and trying to keep it consistent. Talk to me about now when you get into a grade and let's, let's put optimal conditions under it that you're working under a look that you've developed and had some time to uh, evolve with your collaborators. Everyone's kind of bought in on this look. It was captured maybe underneath uh, some version of that. So there, it's a strong negative uh, that you have to work with. What are your go-to like tools and like what's your methodology, I guess, when it does come to shot level grading? What do you do from there? Um, shot level, um, keeping it as sort of, uh, I guess, loosely scene referred, I guess. Uh -huh. <laughs> probably not always entirely scientific, but it's, it's probably close enough to real world changes, especially when it comes to exposure, temperature and tint. Um, because most of the time, if, if you correct that, your, your matching should be done unless something's gone wrong on set. Uh -huh. um, you know, obviously sometimes you need to fix that and then it's up to your experience and taste into how you go about fixing that. Yeah. Um, I will try for as long as possible to stick to primaries um, and, and use secondaries as, as a very last resort. And if I do use them, I will use... Uh, I will take inspiration from the scene as to how to use those. Um, so if there's a light source out of the frame, you know, that would be the center of my power window for brightening, for example, you know, if, if something like that. Um, and it also depends on, on, you know, have I worked with this director and DOP before? Do I know what they like? If not, I'll sort of let them guide things when it comes to the look of the scene and stuff like that. And after about, I don't know, half a day, I will start seeing the way in which they see. Um, I will empathize to their viewpoint on aesthetic. And, you know, I like to think if I've worked with a DP a few times, I mean, a lot of, yeah, they're very, they're very kind. And they say, look, you know, especially after several years, they're like, that. I don't really need to be at the grave. Just send me a link at the end and I'll give you some notes. Like, I trust you. Mm. Um, you know what I like kind of thing. Um, yeah. And that, you know, I think that's the ultimate goal in terms of relationships with directors and DOPs is to develop that trust that you know what they like and can do that. Um, you know, the ultimate goal is to is for them to feel like they don't need to be there um, and that they trust you. But I think that's something that takes time. Um, and there's also different relationships in the suite as well. There's different dynamics in the collaboration and sort of working that out, um, especially in commercials. Um, sometimes there's so many people involved. Um, so that's, that's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the commercial side for a second. So when you are in those sessions with lots of uh, stakeholders in the room and uh, you know, like the, those tend to be the sessions where 
lots of stuff is, is being at least asked for, like to try. And then sometimes by virtue of the fact that there are so many people, you end up with like a stack of like 20 or 30 or 40 things, all of which were just things to try that ended up staying in there. Do you have a strategy or, or a method of keeping things more simple like you were talking about and of kind of like guiding everybody to a common uh, visual goal? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it comes down to man client management, um, people management, discussion, um, and trust. You know, the, the more, I think that that's something that gets easier the more established you are as a colorist when it comes to trust from the client. So you can have slightly more open conversations and sort of question things and maybe say, oh, well, you know, I think if we did do that, you know, let, let's say, um, oh, I really miss that really bright green car in the background. Uh, can we bring that back? You know, can we bring that back? And, you know, I'm looking at the shot and there's like a product in the foreground and, or, or a character. I'm like, why? Why would we? Why yeah. would we want to look back there and then sort of, you know, ask, you know, kind of find out why? If there's a if there's a if there's a request that's been made that I don't understand or, or I guess disagree with on the face of it, I'll always try and dig a little bit deeper to find out why. And then it turn it often turns out their suggestion for a change is what they think is needed for what they want but isn't always necessarily the best solution for what they're trying to achieve with that change. Does that, does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I, I just want to point out for everyone listening, like this is more pro level stuff where like, it's so easy to overlook that the knee jerk for that, when, even when you're all the more as you become a more experienced colorist, the knee jerk, when you get a note like that, that's like, why, why are we going to distract from the background is to, certainly in your mind and probably in your response as well, to some extent, find a, uh, try to find a palatable way to say no, even if you're yeah. good about that. Or, 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 or not necessarily say no. I'd say it's more finding out why they want to do that. I mean, obviously you, yeah. can't, ask, you can't ask that too many times. Otherwise you start doubting them. No, like I mean, I, mean I, I actually was going to say, I feel like that's my impulse in this situation, but you're talking about doing something pretty different than that, where you're like, no, it's not a no. It's, I need to understand better because I have, I know where you want to take this and I don't know how this fits into that yet. You know? Yeah. I mean, um, there's, there's like UN levels of diplomacy <laughs> to, be, to be mastered when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that, that's another thing that I think just takes a lot of time. Um, and then I don't know, just getting quick at doing those changes as well and making them natural and not, not getting annoyed if you disagree with them and not doing it well in the hopes that they might change their mind. I don't know. Like, there's so many sort of pitfalls that you see kind of, you know, yeah. especially with, with juniors and other colorists. And, you know, that's the nice thing about being a sort of facility owner and sort of going through the work and talking about it. And then I, you know, and I'll point to something and I'll say, that's a bit strange. Now I had a client, the client really wanted that in. Um, that's, that's, that's why it's like that way. And I'm like, you know, maybe why, why did they want that? You know, is there a different way to do that? So it doesn't sound out so much, um, and sort of progressing, uh, that with my peers and, and, you know, the same way around as well with, with my work. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's, it's interesting because especially on commercials, you're working with people, sometimes the most powerful people in the room, are quite removed from our, our craft 
um, you know, if you have people, not necessarily from the agency, but from the client and the marketing department or something like that, you know, it's, it's about conversation and, and understanding um, and finding out why they want things a certain way and, and sort of gently, I mean, hopefully most of the time the, the director and DP are doing that in the session. Sure. Um, but, but sometimes if it is just you as the colorist, you know, I feel like there's a responsibility to, to the cinematographer and the, and, the, and the DP to have some form of authenticity there um, and to focus on feeling and the bigger picture um, to save those little bitty bits and changes for, for later and make sure that we get a really good primary pass first. Because I would like to think if we do that, some of the smaller things and notes and ideas might not be needed because they've been resolved in the greater look. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that comes back to your philosophy that I, I, I find so interesting. And I, I know from experience how hard it can be to actually implement, but of like solving for the scene or solving for the overall piece as opposed to solving for that problem in this shot, which might be easier to like be like, okay, now it's done, but then you got to solve it again and again and again. And maybe you won't bat a thousand and you end up with much more of a kind of cobbled uh, end product. Yeah, and it's harder to do that and stay consistent. Um, some colorists do it, and I'm absolutely amazed that they sort of grade shot to shot. I mean, even, yeah, there's, you know, there's, yeah. yeah. I, won't, <laughs> I won't name any names. Those guys are out there, and ladies. They're out there, and they're, yeah. like, they're absolutely nailing it, grading everything shot to shot, and I'm like, yeah. I'm not even sure if I could do that if I tried. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think I could, man. That's, that's hard stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really, really uh, interesting uh, stuff on, on the commercial side. So, I mean, I guess like, let, let's, let's hang out and talk a little bit more about specific tools for a second. So you mentioned primaries and then like kind of holding off on secondaries for as long as possible. Like, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it's sort yeah. of primaries in the entire image. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll try and, I'll try and address all the comments in the notes in a primary, which kind of sounds crazy. Yeah, but it does. I'm always like, there must be. I wonder if there's a primary grade that solves all of our problems at once sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how can I do that in a way that is photographic and has some sense of authenticity, even though it's a radical departure sometimes from what we have, you know, be that, you know, a massive flare or, you know, all sorts of things. And then if it's not that, it's something is extremely soft. And if I can get away with, you know, a power window that's five times the size of the frame um, or, you know, something really soft, something really delicate and natural. If it's a key, a very soft key that affects all of the warm tones, for example, you know, if it's a skin tone comment or something like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, after I've exhausted all of those options, everything gets smaller and, and, and tinier. And, you know, sometimes you need to get into explicit detail and you know zoom into a pixel level or you know get a helping hand from the flame team um and get into that detail you know, it's just, yeah. you know especially on car work and beauty and stuff like that um but yeah that's the kind of distillation of my process that is makes a ton of sense and it, speaking of detail i want to talk to you about something else that is, is like a I feel like a new conversation that's getting more merited attention now. And, and I know all the colorists like you whose work I really, really love are, are paying a lot of attention to, which is like 
texture or the the fancy term of like the MTF curve of like how your the sharpness or softness of the different like regions of your image is going like how does texture fit into your thinking when you're grading um it, you know it comes into feeling and it's also a form of seasoning for me uh -huh. um you know i think when it comes to to texture and you know and when we're um, you know as you mentioned mtf um you know I, I think for a while when people were talking about film texture they were really only talking about grain Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know not the not the different amount of sharpness in the luma curve the, the different response to various frequencies of detail it was really just about grain and a lot of people early on when thinking about film emulation would sort of dive straight into adding grain almost as a sort of first step to make something more filmic or cinematic but i think most of the films we watched, especially on DVD or VHS and stuff like that, like they didn't have any grain, but yeah. they still made us feel that way. So, you know, even Blu-rays, you know, there's not, there is, I guess there's some preservation of, of, of grain and stuff there. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's seasoning, it's something extra. I think um, it's a good way to make something feel it's not really authentic is it it's it taps into i guess it's nostalgia to some extent when we're talking about grain mm -hmm. um, but it there is a there is a relationship there especially when you get into different texture in different areas be that tonally or color wise where it can change the look of the grade depending on your texture work. So, especially with highlights, and, you know, if you look at the tone curve, if you look at the tone curve of some of the, you know, best, uh, best colorists in the world, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but um, the, the fact that we can isolate regions and affect texture means we can have a certain tone curve that still holds detail in certain places or loses it in others yes. without actually affecting the distribution of tone. It's so hard to explain, but you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I, I, I <laughs> you, do, and it's bloody hard to explain. Yeah. It is hard to explain, yeah. Um, you know, like, and let's say having really soft highlights and you've got a really large shoulder on your curve. You know, if you have that, sometimes it can get a little bit muddy in the highlights. And then, you know, you could use some sort of texture enhancement in those highlights to bring back the texture, but keep the softness in the curve. Um, so, yeah, that's probably the best example. That's a great example. And there's such a, a dance there. And, you know, like I, I, uh, I, I, I grade HDR rarely enough that I'm, I, I, every time I do, I'm confronted like the first time a really hot exposure comes through. And I look at it and I like immediately reach for the contrast knob and then usually go like, wait, is that texture or contrast that needs to be modulated here? Cause they're so like how interrelated they are. And it's like the example that you just gave, it's so much more obvious with HDR where you're seeing more of the original dynamic range. It's like, man, those things are almost difficult to talk about as separate elements because they're so intertwined. Yeah. I mean, HDR, oh, yeah. HDR and highlight texture, 
is, is, is a whole, it's a whole, it's a whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, especially when it comes to consistency and, and matching and stuff like that, you know, because you're seeing so much more latitude on screen, it, it is an added level of complexity for, for us as colorists to, to balance that out, especially if you have radically different speculars between shots and stuff like that. Yeah. One of my questions that I, I, I love to ask uh, colorists that I chat with is like, all right, what, what tools do you wish you had? And I, I think I know the answer for you, at least one of them would be uh, like the texture equalizer because you're in Resolve, but like getting the texture equalizer uh, along the lines of what Baselight has would be a really cool thing to have inside of Resolve, huh? Yeah, I mean, we, we have our own version of texture equalizer, but we haven't got texture highlight that Baselight has. Um, uh -huh. So, you know, we, we do things in similar ways, but that's a really nice tool, I have to say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is something that you can sort of, you know, recreate, albeit, you know, not necessarily easily, or if it is easy, it's crude. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, HDR has opened up a whole sort of yeah Pandora's box when it when it comes to texture. Well, you're 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 talking about another corner of your particular like obsessive practice uh, and uh, devotion to the craft, where like you've you've gone far enough along, you've now got your facility and and uh, folks I'm sure you work with to help you be like, hey, I want a thing that does that. That's not like outside of the realm of possibility for you to commission such a thing. Uh, so that you can avail yeah. yourself of it. Yeah, I mean, I obviously need to prioritize what we, you know, what we spend time developing and stuff like that. And it's, you know, there's other things that have a larger impact, especially at a facility. Um, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'd like to sort of keep developing things. Um, but you do reach a point where the tools, the built-in tools sort of catch up with the stuff that you developed a few years ago. Um, and then you're like, well, you know, what's the impact of this? Like, is it, is the impact significant, you know? And I think it's interesting to look at film grain and companies like live grain um, and very expensive solutions to that. And even to some extent, film outs, um, especially to DI neg, you know, you have to sort of question you know, is, is, are we actually getting something that's adding something significant yeah. here? The effort, the time. It's the juice worth the squeeze. Exactly. It's the juice yeah. worth the squeeze. Um, and I think you constantly need to sort of ask yourself uh, as a colorist, you know, what's, you need to be able to prioritize, especially nowadays, because we, we generally, uh, I find getting a little bit less time um, or getting asked to do more. I'm not sure quite which it is, but I certainly feel like I'm, I'm achieving a lot more in grades recently. Um, so therefore, you know, what can I do that has the greatest impact on the work in the time that we have? Um, and, you know, it's, that can be a balancing act with, 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 with clients as well. We, we, you, you mentioned uh, Steve Yedlin earlier and another uh, phrasing of his that I really like is when he talks about, in this case, it's about film emulation, but I think it applies here where as well, where you're thinking about, it's like, all right, what is the essence and, and like essence versus like forensic detail of a thing where it's like, yeah, maybe I can get 1% closer to what I want or what I'm trying to mimic by, you know, creating a custom tool and sinking a hundred hours of dev time into that. But 
if the it, certainly if you haven't already gotten the essence like dialed, you have to question the 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 value of that to the end viewer. Other than it being a cool story for us to talk about as colorists and within your shop, like what is the actual impact of that on the visual experience uh, is a important question. Yeah, definitely. Um, and with everything else in filmmaking, I think similar questions should be asked. You know, especially when it comes to how money's spent, but let's not get into that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, man, uh, I, I think we've, we've delivered on what we promised of having a very fun and completely different conversation than we had it last time. Completely different than yeah. last time. Yeah. Um, I mean, and as with last time, I think, I think I said at the end of that conversation, like, okay, we're off to a good start. Just grab a coffee and give me about 10 more hours and we'll get through all the questions that I had written down here. So <laughs> we'll have to make it a, a to be continued and have uh, more of these chats. But that, I mean, we got to touch on a bunch of really, really great stuff. And I want to thank you again for sharing your time and uh, insights with us uh, in this world of color grading and uh, inspiring me anyway to go make better images and be a better collaborator. Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some good things in there that I don't think I've shared before. So consider this uh, exclusive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, man. Well, thank you again. Enjoy uh, the rest of your weekend and we'll speak very soon. Great. Thanks, Colin. Take care. Bye-bye.